there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. The Robert Scott Scott Bell Show. The federal government can do most anything in this country. And let me say this to all of the chattering class. The American people really don't care. Robert Scott Bell. Where in the Constitution does it give you the authority? I don't worry about the Constitution on this, to be honest. Wow. What's going on here? This is scary. Robert Scott Bell. Bell. I personally feel that I've done nothing morally wrong. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. You know, do me a favor. Could you say Senator instead of Ma'am? I worked so hard to get that title. Stop whining. Liberals, I hate them so much taking on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom and making sense out of medical propaganda the voice of health freedom and liberty robert scott bell this is the week i head up to chicago for the autism one conference and uh dr batar i know you'll be there with me in spirit as we just rail out and get the best information we can to all those parents in need and, and need a lot of help and so we're going to kick it off, Advanced Medicine, do, do a little vaccine discussion as well as any other things that we always pop in with our discussion every week, Dr. Batar. Well, actually, I was with Sherry this weekend and uh, Sherry Tenpenny, and oh, yes. we talked a little bit about uh, this vaccine issue. I actually had a friend of mine that called while I was with her and just had a newborn baby mm-hmm. yesterday and uh, told me that he's relatively new as far as the vaccine issue is concerned, but he talked to his wife and his wife was worried because the doctors are pushing them to have the vaccine. So he called me and said, I'm in the hospital right now. They're pushing to have the vaccines. You know, what should I do? Yes. Uh, he, uh, he said, well, I've told him I don't need vaccines, but they keep on talking about the hepatitis, hepatitis B vaccine. What yeah. should I do? And uh, I laughed and I said, well, it just happened after Dr. Tempany here and I put over a speaker. And I said, Sherry, what do you think you should do? And she said, absolutely not. <laughs> and I said, well, there you go. I said, uh, he goes, can you give me any reasons? And I said, well, and then I just start spotting this off. And this is something that I've talked about many times before. Sherry's talked about this, and pretty much everybody that understands the vaccine issue knows that hepatitis B, as an example, mm-hmm. hepatitis B is something that is widely known to be prevalent in three specific patient populations. One, in promiscuous populations such as uh, prostitutes, for instance. Mm-hmm. Two, in IV drug users, and three within the healthcare profession, not because that they're prostitutes or IV drug users, although some of them are, <laughs> you know, what I think about my profession, but yes. um, the fact because they're exposed to a lot of blood, uh, blood byproducts. Right. Can we go back to that? So, yeah, it, it, blood byproducts. It's hard to say for me, too, blood byproducts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the blood byproducts. Blood byproducts. Yeah, Why is it so hard anyway? Well, you know, it is Monday. It's difficult to speak. You know, what can we say? But yes, yeah, so I understand the exposure that they have. There is a risk associated if you're dealing with a lot of these blood products uh, that you are exposed in certain ways that you're not normally susceptible to. So yes, that could be the case. But how many of those three cases are typical for infants? 
Well, that's exactly the point. We know that the vaccine is given every 10 years in order to maintain the supposed immunity. It needs to be uh, given every three years or boosters are given every three years. So essentially, the first time you're given the inoculations, they're given in a three phase. I think it's every six months for a total of three injections. And then after that, every 10 years, you get a booster. So the question is exactly what you said. How many of our newborn babies before they reach the age of 10 will actually become a nurse or doctor, Mm -hmm. uh, become a prostitute or become an IV drug user? Before the age of ten, and that's the point. That it's it's absolutely ludicrous to push this onto children. And then the other issue is that hepatitis B vaccine has, as you know, ethyl mercury. It's one of the higher concentrations of ethyl mercury for vaccines. And what's really interesting there is that with all vaccines that contain ethyl mercury, which is inorganic mercury times a thousand uh, as far as destructive nature is concerned because inorganic mercury is uh, the second most toxic substance as we've mentioned numerous times in the show but when you add an ethyl group or a methyl group or a phenyl group the the mercury becomes more assimilable within the system and ethyl mercury is about a thousand times more depending on depending on what literature you believe 500 to a thousand times more suffice it to say that it's significantly more toxic than the inorganic form right so now when you end up talking about this form of mercury exposure and you consider that the alimentary tract is the primary natural mechanism of the body to eliminate mercury and that doesn't even form until I thought it was actually one year, and Sherry informed me that it's actually two years. It takes two years before the alimentary tract is fully formed. Wow. So it's not developed even sufficiently for it to output or get rid of or detoxify this mercury. So now you've got a supposed immunity-building component that you've introduced into the body, which we know that's not the case, and it's being put in an environment that's already got the immune system suppressed because the mercury is suppressing the immunity. So how does one expect a child that's developing to, one, out-process a toxin that their system hasn't developed yet to actually out-process, and two, maintain or increase the immune response in the body when the immunity is being suppressed by the methyl uh, or ethyl mercury in this case, uh, which we know is highly immunosuppressive. So, you know, the insanity continues as we've discussed previously, but when you start looking at all these components, one, the patient population that the risk factors are greatest in, and obviously the children are not in that patient population, two, giving them a substance that's supposed to increase the immune system, yet it's going to suppress it, and three, the toxicity component of it that is naturally eliminated by a certain uh, system, the, the gastrointestinal system, isn't even developed for the next two years, then why in <laughs> the name of God would we give any child this vaccine? And yet that's exactly what's happening, and it's been given on the first day on the planet, as you said. Yeah, I, I think about trying to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, oftentimes we'll try to look to the best in people, right? And we'll, we'll attempt to. But at a certain point, when you keep looking at the medical profession, the medical industrial complex, the vaccine industrial complex, there's nowhere to go. I mean, you could try to, here, let me give you this. Don't, you can't walk through that. You, all of those elements. It's like there's nothing defensible, nothing. Even the good intentions are lost in all of this. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. It's just beyond uh, anything that we can explain. And what the opposition is relying upon is the ignorance of the public to perpetuate their charade that they're created. And this is something that 
I honestly believe and have said this publicly numerous times that if the general population were aware of what has actually happened and what is continuing to happen, that would be enough to create the next civil war. Yeah, I, I think if you talk about the needles they they direct at our children, pitchforks, you know, are appropriate in response. As my dear friend Michael Bednarik said after getting the nomination for his presidential run in '04 for the Libertarian Party, Michael, what would you do if a, a doctor said you have to get this vaccination? He said without blinking, Doc, you bring the needle, I'll bring my forty-five, and we'll see who makes a bigger hole. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it sounds outrageous to say it, but when you realize you're injecting ethyl mercury and other things into a helpless, defenseless child based on no science, no rationality, no common sense, nothing but an emotional blind worship of a cult, a death cult in modern medicine. Well, Robert, when you said blind worship, I think it's worse than a blind worship because mm-hmm. you know worship indicates that that you hold something in regard that you're mm-hmm. you know you're worshiping it. This isn't. There's nothing here to worship. In other words, it's perpetual insanity is what it is. Yeah, maybe blind. I don't, I don't know how to, that's one reason I said earlier that you know words can't even explain it. I, I just don't understand it because yeah. there's such a thing as a heinous crime. That's one thing, mm-hmm. but to do it on such a scale, it it goes beyond evil. Mm-hmm. It goes to something that I don't even want to fathom what it could indicate or mean. But again, for those of us that understand really what's going on, not, not from the political standpoint of what's going on out there, meaning what's going on with the vaccine and what it does to the human body physiologically, when we understand the assault that it's creating and the implications to not only the child that it's been given to, but the implications to the entire future of the human race, then you start looking at this from a perspective of what in God's name is going on. Yes. And that's where it crosses that boundary of good versus evil to something even far beyond that. Right. Now, you sent this article. I think it came through your wife. Um, and we've got it linked up in today's show notes at robertscottbell.com. Child dies after vaccination. Indian authorities halt vaccine use. Here we go. They're utilizing the polio vaccine there i believe that's what this was in in india and of course we've been hearing lots of reports of polio paralytic polio occurring post-vaccination there this is another case that just came out evidently exactly and this goes to show uh in fact you brought this up a couple weeks ago about vaccines and their supposed impact beneficial impact on the human race over the last 20 30 40 years and in actuality, it's more of a misnomer because mm-hmm. what they've done is changed the name of the condition, yes, different name, and yet the condition you know, is continuing to affect people all throughout the world. So this is a perfect example of that. I think that's why my wife sent off because she heard the show and she thought this yeah. was... Yes, she said, it, it says here in the article, the incident happened on Thursday in uh, Dahisar, a suburb of Mumbai City, where a three-month-old... Mega Devkari died hours after she was vaccinated orally for polio and injected two other vaccines, which were Hep B, again, we talk about that, and DPT, and that's the Times of India reporting. Now, you know, still, you've got collectivists that believe, as I said, whether it's a religious fervor, cult-like, whatever it is, blind, whatever. The fact is, how do you explain to the, the parents of this child? That, that so-called common good that can't really ever be defined, herd immunity, which is never really ever proven, is worth it when this child dies. 
you just can't. There's, what can you tell a parent when a child's left this realm and moved on to the next one? I mean, what do you tell a parent? I mean, can you imagine what that would feel like? It, I don't even want to try to imagine what that would feel like. And, you know, the amazing thing is that this particular uh, oral polio vaccine was banned in the U.S. in 2000 due to serious health risks. Now, that's something that I wasn't even aware of, that there was a polio vaccine that had been banned in the U.S. because of health risks. Yeah. This was 12 years ago. Were yeah, you aware of that? This, yeah, this is, what, this is another story I've covered years ago where we found that the drug industry, the vaccine industry, when something was rejected here, and you know this for, for fact as well with the thimerosal-containing vaccines, which they oh, all nice. basically contain, where they just suddenly exported it okay we'll send this lot to africa we'll send this lot to india or pakistan they don't know their therapy naive well that's that's actually true i didn't know that that they do that with certain vaccines i know they did that with a lot of the multi-dose versus single dose vaccines because the single dose did not have as much preservative the multi-dose were laden with preservatives and so when the cdc in early 2000s in, in, just after the turn of the century, mm-hmm. had uh, requested, not required, but requested the pharmaceutical companies that were making thimerosal or, or making vaccines containing thimerosal mm-hmm. that they change to single-dose vials, which would then reduce the amount of methylmercury, or at least the implication is that they would need less preservatives since they don't have to be opened and you know, reused over and over again until the entire right. vaccine finishes. And so when they made that recommendation, the new single-dose vaccines came out. And what did they do with the multi-dose? They sent them all to China. Yeah. And yeah. this happened 2002-2003 time frame. And if you recall, 2004 was the first time that China reported uh, their cases of autism. And as I remember, it was over a million new cases of autism. And in China, it's considered a social implication. So it's considered a... a uh, embarrassment, I guess, to the family. So they tend to keep those types of things to the within the family. So the accuracy of the reporting has never been that great in China from what the article that I had read was talking about. But in 2004, a year to year and a half after we sent all these vaccine, no, vaccines over to China, the multi-dose vials of vaccines, there were over a million new cases that were diagnosed. Hmm. And so, you know, this big lead thing about toys from China coming with lead. I always said well, the Chinese are just trying to repay us for our generosity by sending all the mercury over there. Yeah, exactly. The question is when they wake up and realize that they're all being targeted for uh, so-called population reduction, eugenics, etc. And it's, it's a horrific thing, but it's a real thing. And, and all of these stories point to it. We're covering it in all of these mainstream outlets that reveal it, but we're giving you a perspective that you won't get anywhere else. That's why this is advanced medicine Monday here with Dr. Batar. We do this Medical Rewind every Monday. And we're going to be back after this to talk about that and more. Also, there's a story about uh, cancer oncology drugs and what doctors are not acknowledging about them. And Dr. Batar knows full well. And we'll we'll get to that and more here. Remember the number, 866-939-BELL, 866-939-2355, robertscottbell.com for all the links out, including to Dr. Batar's wonderful international best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. You're looking for FDA-approved radio. You're listening to the wrong show. This is the Robert Scott Bell Show. Rocking the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. We discussed the beginning phases of life with vaccines, the, the uh, unconscionable 
uh, attack on children, assault on children. Dr. Batar was recently with uh, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny just over the weekend at a conference. I'd love to hear more about that if we have a moment to do that. Actually, well. it wasn't it wasn't a conference. It nope. was actually uh, I went there for some uh, for a medical. Actually, had went there for medical treatment myself. Oh, uh, cool! All right, well, excellent, even better. But you get you anytime that you can hang out with Doctor Tenpenny is awesome. So, uh, anything you got insights to re- reveal out there? And I appreciate you sharing that story with that phone call that came through right when you were with her because it really stimulated some important things to to for parents or parents to be to recognize that if you are going for a hospital birth, you better have your birth plan laid out and written in stone so that they don't just kind of monkey with you and get you when you're emotionally vulnerable. You know, right. right after the birth that suddenly they, you know, they do something that you didn't want done. So that's a ca- precaution or a cautionary tale, we should say. Right. Absolutely. And uh, I was just there, like I said, to get to have a very radical type of um, osteopathic manipulative type theory treatment done. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, Sherry's in that same area. So we got together and uh, also met with a very prominent CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporation and uh, their very, very attuned to the need for non-conventional treatment, especially in cancer. And they have a very interesting self-insurance policy where they pay 80% of the cost for non-conventional treatments for their employees and the employee pays 20%, which I thought was unbelievable. And this is a wow. this is a Fortune 200 company we're talking about. So, Whoa, uh, that's... that's- Stunning that that yeah. they would consider that or be on that edge now that where they're seeing where this is going. Oh, absolutely! And in fact, uh, I got a call saying that um, they want to meet with me again, and they've reserved their private jet, and they're going to be down to my, oh my Thursday. So, wow. I thought, okay, well, you know, they, I got the call, and I was requested. It was requested of me if I would be in the office on Thursday, and I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll be there. So. Well, this anyway, is exciting. It, this is great news. I mean, this this bodes well for or for the future of where this is going. Some of these companies are much more, uh, let's say, f- have much more foresight as as to this. And as evidence here, hopefully, you can report back as you can on that. But again, more good news out there, despite us having to cover some some really horrific things. Here's another thing: you related to cancer, and you've been seeing so much more, and you've been in- innovative. We we brought out some innovative uh, tests last week that people can plug into as well, and we can get some updates there. But here's a story, and you have that. There, this is off of MedPage today. MDs may not recognize late effects of cancer drugs. Is there anything surprising to you in this, or what, what are we learning by this article? Well, it's uh, interesting because it comes back to that conversation that I had with the CEO of this company when I was in Ohio, and it was one of these were these were some of the topics we discussed. Not only the late stages, but even the treatment itself while the person is still dealing with the cancer. And he made a very bold statement, which I completely concur with, and that is how many people are actually dying of the treatment. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was like, most of the people are dying from the treatment of cancer. And that's the truth. And whether you look at it from the acute stage, or you look at it from the latent stages, this article is talking about the cardiotoxicity aspect, the hepatotoxicity aspect, the uh, bone marrow suppression aspect, the peripheral neuropathies that then cause other types of medication that doctors put the patient on because they don't understand that it's the peripheral neuropathy caused by the 
uh, original uh, chemotherapy that was utilized. And then you've got this, they talk about the secondary malignancies, but they, you know, they don't even mention in this article, at least I didn't see it, they don't even mention like radiation necrosis and some of these other components that are in, just incredibly devastating to the individual that's sustained the, the chemotherapy or the radiation. Mm. Yeah, in this case, they were focusing solely, evidently, on, on chemotoxicity type assaults. And yet, that only 10% of the doctors... 10 percent less than 10 percent fewer than that you know this should be a stunning wake-up call and so much of what we've covered you know it isn't our intent to as we've talked about and we've joked sometimes about bashing doctors but my goodness do, do they not deserve a little bit of uh, something for not knowing about that which they're they're providing to their patients well that's the whole point robert that you know when you give a chemotherapeutic drug you know they talk about the fact that this is the, quote, standard of care. Right. And nobody talks about the sequela of this standard of care. So when you get the chemo and radiation, with, like in my case with the North Carolina Medical Board, their big concern was whether I gave informed consent, meaning that did I talk about the chemo and the radiation. And we had to you know, virtually slap them back and say, these people were in hospice that already failed chemo and radiation. What in God's name are you talking about? Did you not read the thousands of pages of, you know, over a thousand pages of medical charts that you subpoenaed? Yeah, I mean, what are you supposed to tell people that have been through chemo and radiation, nearly been destroyed by it, and are going for one last opportunity for healing, and they want you to what? Explain to them the benefits of something that nearly killed them? Exactly. I've got it right now. I've got a surgeon in my office, an ophthalmological surgeon who uh, has a very rare type of uh, prostate cancer, old cell car- or small cell carcinoma of the prostate. And, uh, you know, he's gone through the chemo, the radiation. He, he did everything, and he was just failing. And he's in our office now, and it's devastating what, it, what it's done to him. And God willing, we'll pull him through it. But the point is that yeah, this, is a, this is a doctor himself, uh, and ophthalmological surgery is, you know, one of the top, Tears in surgery. So the guy's an educated guy. He's an intelligent guy. And he was thrown into this cascade. And he really didn't want to go through it. He just didn't know what else to do because they said, well, this is very aggressive. It's a, it's a rare type of prostate cancer. I didn't even know they had such a thing as small cell carcinoma of the prostate, tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, you know, it, it shocked him. And uh, it's just so, been so fast. Prostate cancer is traditionally recognized very as slow. being one of the slower moving Right type of cancers, and this has just been you know a raging bull. But he went through these things again because of the typical cascade that is elicited when somebody hears the word cancer, mm-hmm. and then it's boom, boom, boom. You know, you just get thrown on this. What do they call it? The um, well, it's, it's like being in a mill or a machine. You exactly, just get thrown exactly. into this, yeah, the, and the cogs take yeah. you where they take you, and it's such an like the the old record grooves of old it's hard to get out of it you know you just fall right into that pattern especially if you're medically trained although we've also talked about the fact that a lot of docs have woken up and this isn't a recent phenomenon particularly in the oncological field that will not treat their family members or themselves the same way they will treat others absolutely yeah i was going to say treadmill but it's not the treadmill it's that it's that conveyor belt type situation that Mm -hmm. once a person gets put on it you just automatically get whisked down the line and everything is automated and everything is a process that nobody questions because it's quote the standard of care it's like the herd of cattle that's being pushed down that chute Mm -hmm. and and you're essentially being led to slaughter and i hate to say it that way but that's exactly what's happening right well and it certainly is in, in the oncological field 
those that have not woken up to this reality, and some have only partially. And uh, I'm horrified by the doctors that would treat others the way they wouldn't treat themselves. But again, we've seen that, the kind of horse blinders that go on. Well, I've got to make a living. Well, I've got to pay my debt. Well, uh, on and on. But ultimately, you know, where is your value in those that come to seek you out for help and the value of, of their life if you realize how dangerous or devastating it is? But then again, with an article like this, Dr. Batar, we can say that they have plausible deniability because less than 10% are even aware of these long-term toxicities. Well, you would think that cardiac dysfunction, cardiomyopathies, some of these types of dreaded conditions, this should be a very common thing that doctors are aware of. You know, some of the other things it's possible that the doctor isn't even aware that the patient had cancer in the past, which you would think that every doctor would know if the patient had cancer, but it's remarkable the laxity in mm-hmm. gaining medical histories of patients, the surgical histories of patients. Right. Uh, I remember when I was in residency seeing some of the attending staff, and you know this is an embarrassment, but the surgeon would go up, and of course not all doctors are like this. I mean, there's some very good surgeons, but I remember seeing a surgeon doing a pre-op physical before the patient went, I just wanted to ch- check the patient, and he puts a stethoscope to the patient's chest, and the patient, you know, is sitting there and comfortable that the doctor is listening to the chest, but the earpiece wasn't even in the ear. Oh my gosh! It I mean, like- it was the most absurd thing. And I remember I turned to one of my res- one of my residents that was standing next to me, a senior resident, and uh, he just grabbed my shoulder and spun me around, you know, like because he knew I was going to say something. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like, you don't be an idiot. Just, don't say it. Just <laughs> Yeah, well, that's yeah, it's almost it's done for show. But you know, one of the aspects of homeopathic medicine, real homeopathy, is the anamnesis, is the questioning of the patient, is the finding out everything and anything that you can that you can actually make a picture of this, so you understand why. How does this person get here? As opposed to pretending it's a random act of God, and then you can suddenly magically transform them by throwing toxic poisons in there, irradiating their body. I mean, there is something that is so lost. Now, we also know that the, the the business of disease and the third-party payers and the government infringement, all of that has destroyed the doctor-patient relationship. So, you know, there are five people hired just to manage for every one patient, basically, beyond the doctor. So it's, it's just it's not feasible that that system is going to last much longer. You're absolutely right. And actually, outside of even homeopathy, every healing profession, even if you go back to the shamans and the witch doctors and whoever the healer of the community was supposed to be, the causative factor was always an important part of what was going on with the patient, even if they didn't know what the causative factor was, trying to figure out what caused the pathology to begin or what the symptoms mm-hmm. were, you know, where were you when it occurred, how did it occur, how often was it occurring. All these things are asked because you need to know what caused the condition, yet if you don't look at the causative factors and you just act as, as you said, you know, the, the random act of God that the person got the illness and then you start throwing drugs at it. I mean, it's taking one unknown and throwing another unknown at it. And what, what are you going to get? You're going to get an unknown. Really? Yeah. I mean, you went to med school to learn that? Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, listen, Advanced Medicine Monday continues on here. We're going to take a quick break, a breather here. Coming back with uh, Dr. Batar. Also, I got a quick audio clip from Ron Paul in Minnesota I think you're going to enjoy. How do you know if liberty is returned? And <laughs> we're going to give a listen to that, and I'll, I'll get Dr. Batar's commentary as well. Yeah, lots more healing to go on The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show.
willing to go where the truth takes him. Here's Robert. You know, with advanced medicine, Dr. Batar and I love to talk liberty. We've covered the Ron Paul revolution, which is ongoing, despite a lot of the things that are controversial about, oh, he stopped, he's not, he has. Yeah, we, listen, he, he won big in Minnesota, Dr. Batar, huge. But my mom was very disappointed by what happened in Georgia. You know, we talked about her, 78 years old from Israel, and she wants to be a Ron Paul delegate. And she said the old guard, you know, the good old boys hijacked it back, and it was not pleasant. She was absolutely disgusted. You know, so the context of what Republicans are today is not the same as what Ron Paul is doing today, which is bringing liberty back into that party, if it's, a, if it's at all possible to revitalize it. And I'm not saying it is, but the point is what Ron Paul is inspiring is way bigger than any party. And he visited Minnesota. Uh, he got all the, basically all the delegates up there, which was really amazing. And he laid it out this way. He said, how do you know when liberty is restored? I'm reminded by something I saw in the audience here just a minute ago that we will know when the republic is returned to us. That is, you'll be allowed to drink raw milk whenever you want to. (laughs) And also, also, if you want to make rope out of hemp, you'd be allowed to make rope out of hemp once again. I mean, that's classic Ron Paul just laying it right out. We'll be able to drink raw milk again. I mean, it's the simple I stuff. Mean, this, is, this is amazing that a presidential candidate, and you know, I wouldn't expect anything less from Ron Paul, but it's amazing yeah. that a presidential candidate is bringing this home, bringing this type of topic home. I mean, anybody who listens to him, I have heard every single group, denomination of religions, um, you know, genders, age Mm -hmm. groups, everybody that's ever listened to him, Robert has said the same thing. Well, he makes a lot of sense. (laughs) It's like, yeah, of course he makes a lot of sense. No matter what their belief is political, most people, unfortunately, don't think that he has a chance of winning, so they won't vote for him, but they all say he makes sense. Yeah, and of course we get into that, uh, you know, obstacle of well, we don't have a chance. I mean, how how many people would be helped by you if they believed every other doctor out there, Doctor Batar? What is my chance of of living? Of course, you know, it, it depends also very much so on the belief of the patient. And if they believe that they have a very slim to none chance based on what other doctors have told them, it's going to be very hard to bring them back with all of the natural remedies in the world. Absolutely. No, I agree with that totally. And the will to live is, is most crucial in, in dealing with somebody who's been already told that they're not going to make it. And that's, that's a powerful negative that's been introduced into their psyche that has to be almost at all costs removed. Because if you don't, they're, they're not going to make it. If they believe it, then that's it. You can't do something unless you believe that it's possible. So yeah. I totally agree with you. And I really, really love that message. I mean, it's such a short little message from Ron Paul, yet it really brings it home because – that's really the essence of it, Robert. And I just, I'm so grateful that there's at least somebody that was running for president that had the power mm-hmm. and, and, and the cojones to <laughs> actually come out and say that. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think it's, I love the way we can tie it into the whole belief system. Like you're bringing people and transforming consciousness. Isn't that right? You know, I mean, these physical ailments, as real as they are. They're really designed to transform consciousness ultimately. And whether we start from a physiological perspective or a spiritual one, what I see in Ron Paul is really is all of that involved. I mean, the guy doesn't wear his religion on his sleeve, yet he lives such a, in such a way that anybody could emulate and say, yeah, I respect that immensely. I, w- I wish I could live that principled a life. I completely agree. And it's the old saying that Buddha said, Mm-hmm. We should take every opportunity in our lives to preach and never open our mouths. 
Yeah, exactly. You'd be the living examples. And and in that speech, I didn't play a lot. There were a lot of clips that I want to get to eventually. But he talks again about being a leader in the sense of an example to the world. You know, he doesn't mind inspiring people to liberty, but he doesn't. He does mind doing it at the point of a gun. It's like how how do you expect people to enjoy liberty when liberty is done at gunpoint? And how can you call it liberty when it's done at gunpoint? Exactly. So these are the kind of things that we're seeing transformative regardless of whether Ron Paul gets the nomination or not. We know that there are forces allied against him, but there's a lot of people that are no longer playing by the script. Case in point, the people that come to you, Dr. Batar, and say, I don't believe those doctors anymore. I want to live. I believe I can live. I will live. And you'll facilitate that by applying principles in healing. And there are those that will hear Ron Paul and say, yes, it's common sense, but I don't think he has a chance. And they'll they'll go back just to the chemotherapy, just like in medicine. I see that. They're not yet committed enough to the principles to really go for it all the way. You have to, one, believe, and then you have to take action. Um, it doesn't happen just by sitting back. Uh, it's that wishful thinking of, you know, when people tell me, well, you have to have a positive attitude, I tell them, of course you have to have a positive attitude. But, you know, if you're driving down the road and you're on empty and you say, I won't run out of gas. I won't run out of gas. I won't run out of gas. And then you run out of gas. Positive attitude didn't do much there. In other words, positive attitude along with appropriate action Mm -hmm. is necessary in order for a person to have success. And that all starts with, as you said, belief first and then taking action, appropriate action. Yeah, if your beliefs are, are, are not going to change what you do, are they really your beliefs? You're just claiming something that isn't real for you. And I see that with the political, you know, I love tying in the politics to the healing because it's the body politic, whatever. It helps people get a better perspective on how these principles are running through all of our lives, even though we'll try to compartmentalize them and claim that they don't work here. They'll work here, here, and here, but not there. No, no, never there, right? And these are just delusions that keep us, I, I guess, perhaps able to run in a state of denial without having such cognitive dissonance that we can't function. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's a, if it's a truth, it's got to be a universal truth. You can't have truths that are selective in certain circumstances or during certain periods. I mean, either either they're true or they're not. And and truth is universal. So we go back to the healing here. We take out the the context of the, the politics, but realize that there is no semblance or no difference in reality to how these principles work. And you did it so well in the nine steps to keep the doctor away. I mean, a lot of the stories that are there in the book actually portray, you know, a lot of these concepts of needing even to believe in the healing process to be able to have facilitate the opening for the energy to flow, the metabolism to shift and everything else that you know to do. That's that's true, Robert. I had to make sure that people got the essence of the lesson and you can't get the essence of the lesson unless you tell the story and the story always starts off with where the person was and the belief that the person had and the belief that my clinic had, my I had, that my staff had, and, and then how we proceeded forward. And I think that's one of the reasons perhaps that the book's done so well and it's been um, so well received in so many different countries and you know multiple translations now. It's, it's just been a true blessing. Yep, and we mentioned the new award that was given last week, which is very exciting. And, of course, uh, you know, more things happened. It's like you didn't hang up. The book's done. I, I'm not learning anymore. I've written it. That's my treatise. It's over. I mean, every week we come together, Dr. Batar, and you're bringing in, man, I learned this new thing this last week. I mean, it's exciting. It keeps everybody so young. Well, the next book is going to be the the real <laughs> the <laughs> real doozer here because I'll tell you, the, that, that was a book that was written, and that was the one that was initially submitted to the publisher. But 
the to the credit of the president of the publishing company, he was just ecstatic. He was so excited, and he he said that this is you know he just had two twins that were born, and he didn't believe in the vaccines. He said, "Oh, this is great. This is fantastic. I can't wait for the book." Blah blah blah. My wife is really excited about it, and and they were going through the whole process. And next thing, I get a call saying, "You know, thank you, Doctor Patar, for the submission. Unfortunately, uh, we will not be able to publish the book, and uh, we wish you best luck." And I'm like wait a second, what what just happened? And when I contacted them, they said their attorneys got a hold of the manuscript, they reviewed it, and they said uh, they absolutely could not publish it. And the reason was because they were worried about all the lawsuits that would ensue. And my question was, lawsuits, why would anybody sue about this? And they said they're not worried about the public or the readership suing. They were worried about the governmental agencies, the AMA and the medical boards and the FDA and the Federal Trade Commission and all these other people that were very clearly <laughs> – named and what they did and how they did it. And it's a matter of public record. And they said that, uh, you know, we, we can't put this out. And I said, what happened to the First Amendment? I thought we were still, you know, living in the land of the free. And if you can publish porn, why can't you publish this book? And they said, well, the point isn't whether you would win or not eventually, but they would end up drowning the publishing company with uh, the lawsuits and just tying it up in court. And they just wouldn't be, they would run them into the ground and they just couldn't afford to do it. And so they apologized and they said that, they wished me luck, and I was uh, contacted back by one of the agents from the publishing company saying, isn't there something else? We really want to publish one of your things. Isn't there something else you can? And that's when you know, the Nine Steps came out, and that's the toned-down version. So now that I am an international best-selling author, now I don't need to worry about that, and uh, we're just going to self-publish the next one and put it out. Oh, awesome. Well, again, this, this is the, the, the paving that you made by putting the nine steps out the way you did and what it became is opening up so many more p- possibilities. It's already impacted you know, thousands and thousands of people around the world and, and many more yet to be touched that each week we're outreaching to as well. And so it's exciting that it's not the end. Like I said, it's just the phase phase one out of many phases yet to come. Yeah, it, it has been a blessing, Robert. It is exactly that. It's it was the initial step, and but the journey is has many steps, and um, so each subsequent step will hopefully build upon the previous one and allow us to uh, complete the mission that we were sent here to do. Well, the mission may never be complete totally, but that's again what keeps us young, keeps it exciting, and we're going to do that. We're going to wrap up today's show with Dr. Batar. We're going to talk about what's upcoming at Autism One. I'm going to ask him some things that I should definitely bring. Up there for the event in Chicago next week. Stand by. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Taking on bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. All the links are up at robertscottbell.com, over to Dr. Batar, drbatar.com, of course, Medical Rewind, uh, The Nine Steps, so many things to access information that you will not hear anywhere else on a regular basis. And all we ask is you support those that support this message of health, freedom, and liberty. And, of course, if you need help, Dr. Batar is up there in uh, North Carolina or down there, depending on where you are, and you can see the links there. Dr. Batar, so I'm going to be going to Autism One uh, in a couple of days. I'm going to be there for a few days and definitely want to get The Nine Steps out to everybody, but... Anything that we should know about the early years versus what's gone on? Because I already heard there's a lot of misinformation, misunderstandings. Of, there's probably a lot of chaos in the early years of autism becoming – people were aware of it. Well, I don't know whether there's a lot of chaos from the early years versus just the same thing that we see in every aspect of life, Robert. Mm-hmm. And that is there are people that have a vested interest to try to gain some footing and there's misinformation, there's politics – 
there's ego, there's it's just, it's the human factor you know, creates all this. Sure. But, so, I, but I have to imagine that when this was suddenly in the 90s, particularly becoming blowing up, I mean, all of this autism being identified, and yet there were so few doctors, count them on one hand maybe, and you were one of the keys because of what happened with your son to be innovative and do these things. In the early years, there was probably such a learning curve for people, and, and maybe even people weren't able to learn because there was just too much, too much input everywhere. Well, I think that the bottom line comes down that there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of people say there's a lot of things that work, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, while I'm talking to you, there's an email that I just received saying uh, oxytocin testing for autism spectrum disorders. And you know, oxytocin is one of the big things that's out there right now. And mm. <clears throat> what I would put out to people and what I think is important for people to understand is, again, you know, if oxytocin does help, which I'm sure it may have because there's a lot of people that are talking about it, but Oxytocin is a hormone that is important in pregnancy and delivery. It is not something that's normally found in children, and it is certainly not something found in male children. And male children, males are um, four times more affected than females. And so, if there is a herb or a hormone or a vitamin or a mineral or whatever that helps a child don't start to think that that is the answer because we weren't born with a shortage of oxytocin. These children weren't born with a shortage of oxytocin. That's what caused the problem. In other words, look at the causative factor. What caused the problem and address what caused the problem. And if anybody looks at what causes the problem, the problem is nothing more than mercury on board of physiology that can't clear the metals appropriately. That's it. And if that wasn't the case, then the almost 1,700 children that we've treated since 1998 and the over 25,000 children that have been treated using our protocols worldwide now would not have gotten better or would not have shown levels of improvement. I had recently um, had a conversation with somebody and they said, well, I'm aware of your protocol, Dr. Pitar, but I've met a couple of people and they said that, you, you know, they tried your protocol and it didn't work. And my first question was, how long did they try it? You know, you do something like that for six weeks or two months and you think it's going to work. You're, you're really misguided. It's a denudation of the neurofibrils that's taken place. And even if I pull the mercury out effectively in one month, you've still got the damage you've got to deal with. And so I've got patients that have rapidly recovered from what happened to them. And when I say rapidly, I mean, three weeks, four weeks, I've had a couple of patients that have actually responded that fast. In fact, there was a movie that was coming out called um, Walk on Water, I think it was. I don't know whether they finished the documentary, but they start that documentary by a woman who calls our office. And she was one of my patients. She was another doctor's patient, but she followed our protocol. And she was talking about what happened with her daughter. And she's crying when she's leaving this message. And the message was essentially that they started her treatment. She was nonverbal, and in a week, this little girl started speaking, and within two weeks, she had over 500-word vocabulary, and the mother couldn't even maintain her own composure as she's leaving this message on our voicemail. And so that's the, that's the voicemail that they actually, they actually have that as the narrative over the B-roll footage of the movie starting. But the point that I'm making is not everybody has that type of response. Some people, it takes months or years. I've got children that I've been treating for three or four years now, and finally the mercury's coming out, and finally they're starting to speak, and finally you know, they're going through these rapid transformation processes where 
They've been in diapers since, since the age of, since they were born, and now they're 9, 10, 11 years old, and, and now they're getting out of the diapers. But it took them three or four years on the treatment to, to get to that point. So the butterfly chasers aren't going to see this benefit because you know what I refer to as a butterfly chasers, right, Robert? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, these people expect that there's an instantaneous quick fix even from complex scenarios and that they'll always be the same for everybody. And there are people very happy to sell them on the idea. Absolutely. And that's, I think, where the problem comes in, that the politics and the ego and all that other stuff that I, that I mentioned. And, um, uh, you know, to me, if I don't see another autistic child not to experience the pain of the patient, not to experience the frustration, I, am, I would be very grateful for that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's probably been um, the toughest of all the things you've We still doing. have patients coming from everywhere, so it's just uh, the day that that ends – and God willing, it'll end for everybody that they don't have to deal with that. That will be a very blessed day for us all. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate you sharing that because that is the perspective, I think, that you forget and you want to have them take care of my kid, right? My kid. But you recognize your kid is your kid. Your kid is unique and doesn't fit into the same ball that every other kid does. And each one is individual. So when they say, well, well I saw that kid get well in X number of weeks or months. Why can't mine do it, too? That is the unique aspect of each individual child. And, you know, as a healthcare provider of any kind, you have to recognize they're not cattle. They're not the same. We have to treat them uniquely individually, and they'll respond accordingly. Well, it's very true what you just said. And I've had a conversation like this with three different parents, and all three parents didn't think that this would happen to them. But they went along because they had faith. But they didn't think that children were going to actually resolve. Well, like one parent did, the other parent didn't. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? The father mm-hmm. did, but the mother didn't, or vice yeah. versa. And this is, all three of these parents, two years under treatment, uh, the child has been under treatment, and two years to the mark, like yeah. within three weeks, all three of them came out of it at the same time. Oh, extraordinary. And, Look. and parents are just, been, you know, they can't. It's so funny, though. You always know it because they can't hold their emotion back. Sure. You know? Well, I mean, I'm glad they came out of it in time, and whatever that time is, we're out of it today. But when we get together next week for Advanced Medicine, it will be just after Autism One, so I'm going to share on on the air what my experience has been. Dr. Pitar, you can comment on it, and I'm looking forward to it so much, and I'm glad that uh, we're going to have you there in spirit, if not with some of those books as well. Thank you, Robert. Well, in the meantime, just remember this. The power to heal is yours. Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell Show.